This is a Pain Information Network. Outside edition, it's summer, so you're going to hear everything again. And I hope you hear the birds. They've really been great. The dogs are out. Um, it's just beautiful today. Uh, no rain. No rain. We've been deluged with rain pretty much all summer, but we got a sunny day. So everybody's out. Maybe a lawnmower or two, uh, maybe a leaf blower. So it goes. All right, Gary. Gary's a PA, pain management practice. Gary sometimes inherits patients, uh, as we all do, on uh, a lot of medicines. And the holy trinity, according to the DEA, is Xanax or Prazolam or your benzodiazepine of choice, Soma, which is um, uh, purportedly a muscle relaxer, but actually it's pretty habit-forming. It's an interesting drug because... It's metabolized to meprobamate, and meprobamate's an old, old sedative. And so that's why people probably like it. And uh, sometimes a little Ambien mixed in there to help with sleep. Um, If you're having that much trouble sleeping, you need a sleep study. And then, of course, the opioid. And in this case, uh, Gary is talking about a pretty robust dose of opioids. Oxycodone, 30 milligrams Q4, or Oxycontin, 80 milligrams Q8. And you start mixing all these drugs up, and you, you build the Holy Trinity, and you build it to um, a level that is really unsustainable. What are you going to do? Well, often you refer to pain management. I call that a risk shift. You, you shift the risk of prescription habitry from one practice to another, which... I understand our role as pain management practitioners is to take over these drugs sometimes and manage them. But managing and sending them, quote, to get your medicine there, unquote, which we often hear, is not necessarily in everybody's best interest. Sometimes it's in the patient's best interest and sometimes in the provider as well to uh, diminish the opioid load for a number of reasons. And we've talked about opioid-induced hyperalgesia, opioid-induced constipation, side effects from these drugs, suppression of the adrenal axis, so men, you can have uh, decreased testosterone, a few other problems there, and women, they have problems as well. So the side effect of these opioids can be pretty insidious, and you don't really know it's coming, and sometimes you have to test for it and look for it. So in other words, if you're having trouble sleeping, it's not about a pill. It's often about getting a diagnosis. And remember, that's rule two. I need to go through those rules again uh, because that podcast got deleted. But rule two is you got to have a diagnosis, and so we just don't treat pain with the pill we just don't treat poor sleep with the pill we try to figure out what's wrong diagnosis first movement forward second so it becomes his job to wean patients down and that's his question about weaning so my first caveat to weaning is uh Gary and other providers, uh, please understand, if you don't have the added credential of a X waiver on your DEA certificate, be careful of that word wean, particularly with methadone. You can't, quote, wean 
uh, somebody down on methadone without an ex-waiver or actually being an addiction specialist. That's, that's the way it is. I make these rules, but uh, just be very careful. I would call it dose adjustment. So how do you approach these patients? Well, first of all, it's an active discussion, and you've you got to give and get a little bit here and there. And understand if these patients have been on Xanax, which many people have been on for years, and I'm not kidding. I've said it before. Uh, you, you'll be driving down the road, and you look to your right, you look to your left on the interstate, 70 miles an hour, and those two people are on some type of uh, central nervous system depressant and most likely benzodiazepine. We're becoming more enlightened with benzodiazepines, and the CDC guidelines pretty much shocked reality into a lot of prescribers that benzodiazepines are not benign drugs, and they should be taken very seriously. So, Gary, my first step with you is look at the drugs that could cause the most problems, okay? And I would say the ones that would cause the most problems and you have to be very careful with would be the opioids and other central nervous system depressants, in this case, Xanax. And I know Soma's there. I think this person needs to go away from Soma. We have other options that are um, excellent. So take somebody on these high-dose opioids, 80 milligram Q8 of Oxycontin, that's cancer dose, uh, and for chronic pain is probably inappropriate. Have a discussion with the patient and these benchmarks, where they're going to be at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, where do you want to be, and develop a plan. You have to have an active plan, and if we don't hit those goals, we need to know why. Why aren't you hitting that plan? We've talked about that. So... That's what you're going to do with the patient. You're going to say, first of all, OxyContin's a BID drug. And I know pharmacokinetically it's probably a TID drug, but it's labeled BID. So take that seriously. I get asked that a lot. What do you do with a BID drug that's taken TID or three times a day instead of two times a day? Well, you have a discussion with the patient that, you know, it's a new era, and it's uh, one that we have to follow black box warnings and be very cognizant of them. Um, that's something to Google if you don't know what a black box warning is. And we have to be very sure of ourselves in this new era of the opioid epidemic. And so well, let's, uh, let's start whacking this down. I would ask them... What do you need the benzodiazepine for? Well, I have situational depression, anxiety, I have PTSD, that's fine. There they go. Well, yeah, but we have other ways of treating that. And the American Psychiatric Association, Canadian Psychiatric Association, and NICE, which is the Canadian uh, version, uh, says there's no place for benzodiazepines treating um, anxiety, depression, etc. So benzos need to be used other places. You can't abruptly stop them. Benzos are one of those drugs you just have to wean. Depending on the half-life of the drug, the benzodiazepine in particular, it may take a long time to first see withdrawal in the case of a long-acting benzo, or uh, in, in the case of weaning, you may have to go slower and expect a longer latency period 
with uh, uh, the longer acting uh, benzos. So take the uh, Valium, take the uh, drugs that would fall in that kind of category, and look at them with not only active metabolites, but the fact it's going to take a long time to get them off it. You can take uh, five half-lives of Valium and consider that drug to potentially be in an elderly person's um, detectable uh, limits for up to a week. Think about that. So the other thing benzodiazepines do is they interfere with sleep architecture. So educate the patient. It's not helping them sleep. It's actually interfering. Lowers uh, serotonin, which can result in more pain. So you're not winning. But I have to be on this drug. Well, no one has to be on anything. Um, We live in a culture that is sometimes defined by a pill for our quality of life. So let's have that active discussion. Let's think of imagery and other ways to deal with um, this problem and probably should have some form of psychiatric care provider or at least a harms assessment early on. I think that's important. So, okay, start. I would start with the – this is just my opinion. So, I mean, talk it over with your um, – uh, you know, you're supervising physicians and other pain experts, but, you know, this is just an opinion and a suggestion that's worked for me. I um, I would start with the benzo slowly. Then I would uh, have that very direct conversation of this is a BID drug, not a TID drug, or in the case of OxyContin 30Q4, this is a very high, high dose, and these are the side effects we could get. So let's look at safer approaches. Um, maybe you do want a pharmacokinetically long-acting agent, um, something that is dose-administered around the clock, like a Dergesic or fentanyl patch, or uh, something that uh, could be on the line of a, a pharmacokinetically long-acting morphine or something like this. But be careful of buprenorphine. Uh, the uh, buprenorphine patches and the oral forms, uh, they they can throw pe- people into withdrawal. They can precipitate withdrawal. So kind of stay away from buprenorphine here. You also don't want to have the appearance that you're using uh, buprenorphine to detox somebody, especially if you don't uh, have an X waiver. It's a great drug. Don't get me wrong. But... Uh, first, first, let's get them on a pharmacokinetically smooth drug. Now, when you make an agent shift like this from oxycodone, I love you, I hate you, but I really think you're a good drug, but I'm, they get out of control so fast on oxycodone. Um, you need to understand this concept of uh, cross-tolerance. And um, I'm using it, this term loosely, but... Just because they're tolerant to one drug or one class doesn't mean they're necessarily tolerant to another drug, even in the same class. So you have to be really careful. I, as a rule of thumb, and I'm just talking about me, you know, this is something you probably want to research a little further, talk it over, yuck it up with folks. I take uh, these conversion tables and ignore them. And they just have never worked for me. I think this concept of cross-tolerance says that um, there are different pharmacokinetic and pharmacogenetic uh, tolerances and um, ways of metabolizing these drugs that would suggest you start sometimes up to a third lower in the um, 
pharma, uh, pharmacokinetic uh, and uh, pharmacologic uh, uh, milligram dosing expectation. So you can go to these tables and you can see that morphine as a gold standard is considered one and another drug might be three times as potent or another drug may be one half as potent as morphine. You can look at these. There's the different tables. Just take them to get a rough idea. And, and look at them and, and throw into this mix cross-tolerance. Then reduce your expected dose. If you need to bring them back in 48 hours, that's fine. It might be 72 with some of these long-acting drugs. You want to let them have a chance to get some of these drugs down, which brings us uh, to the next uh, question mark. Well, do I just switch them? Well, not always. In the case of methadone, for example, which is a real hard drug to manage get a methadone level and if the trouble with methadone is it's metabolized uh, through a system uh, that can get plugged up with other drugs so if they're on certain drugs or they've had new drugs added their methadone level may be going up and let's start with the baseline knowing what the methadone level is and have them come back um, and um, I would tell them to hold off on their methadone for 24 hours, see them again, another 24. It lasts a long time. Uh, another 24 hours, maybe have them come back. If the methadone level is fairly high, you want them to just feel a little uncomfortable, um, not in Florida withdrawal. Uh, go Google the opioid withdrawal scale. You want them to stay under 10 on that. And right about then you probably can make a conversion uh but that's not a that's just a rough rule of thumb others are going to have different opinions it's worked for me so let's summarize where we're at start coming down on the benzodiazepine load understanding it may take a while uh active conversations with patients a lot of motivational interviewing a lot of motivation and positive thoughts Get them wrapped up as a proactive role in their own health care in these benchmarks. Get them thinking that pain is not an opioid deficiency. Okay? We have other ways to treat pain. We have adjuncts. We might be able to do it better. We might be able to go way down on the opioid load and look now. Your quality of life is is better. It's a lot better. <laughs> and when patients start seeing this, they buy into it. So a specific formula or method uh, to quickly wean them? No, there isn't. Um, if you have further questions, um, you know, please uh, go ahead and message me here. I'd be happy to help you, and uh, I'd even run it by Sandy Silverman. He has his way of doing things. But there's no quick wean. Uh, I think you're going to have to uh, get past that hurdle as well, the psychological hurdle, where they need to get invested and understand that you're working with them, not against them. That's a real hard concept because people, they, they get these drugs as a part of their lifestyle. If you notice, patients, well, they won't usually have their opioid with them when they're going places, grocery shopping or whatever. But you ask them, and they'll always be able to pull their benzo bottle out. So... Um, you know, that just shows the type of dependency people get. So compassionate care is your um, cornerstone. 
but understand it's going to take a little bit of time. Now, if you have a, um, you, most everybody should by now, except Missouri, <laughs> have a uh, prescription data monitoring program, uh, keep checking it. Um, trust but verify. The other thing is you want to uh, do more frequent drug screenings. It's just safe that way. Well, I had a few I had in the drawer, or I found an extra Xanax, and I, I really needed it. you got to have another harms discussion with them. You know, it's like we're in this together. You know, uh, the uh, uh, provider relationship is built on trust. Okay. Do you typically employ other medications to facilitate the weaning process? like clonidine sometimes clonidine works uh, as an alpha 2 agonist in the central nervous system and it blunts norepinephrine which is this this sympathetic response to uh, withdrawal that's why people get anxious they get chills they get bugs all all over me Uh, the things they, they describe yeah it can help the problem with some people is they just can't tolerate the clonidine and it is uh you know, an antihypertensive, and you have to kind of watch folks if they're on uh, multi-pharmaceuticals and be in touch with their primary care if they are. They may, patients may also retain fluid, and um, you have to just understand there's a weaning process with this drug too. And so I much prefer to get folks down to a reasonable level of opioid consumption just you know down to a reasonable level and then start talking to them about medication assisted treatment for a little while and um, I encourage everybody including you Gary go get your X waiver PAs and nurse practitioners can get it now and it's Suboxone is not just replacing another drug for another it's a tool and it really is helpful it takes the edge off it interferes with cravings and patients say thank you they really do. While many of these patients do fairly well with weaning, do you find a subset of patients who seem to generally struggle with weaning, even when done gently to the point of severely impacting their functional capacity and emotional state? You betcha. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm going to go back to dose adjusting and to benchmarks and getting people invested into this. Um, Patients will say, I just can't get out of bed. It's unbelievable what some people say about their dependency. Without my XYZ, these are just little pills. (laughs) I can't do anything. I can't go to work. It's your fault. Um, I've been on this so long, I feel like I'm going to kill myself. Well, that just happened to me last week. The patient said, if I I can't give my medicine, I'm going to kill myself. What do you do with that? Well, you get everybody involved, and that's a topic for another uh, discussion. But have a script ready. Learn your script. Well, I understand how you feel, but this is a process. We didn't get here overnight. We want to help you understand what's in your best interest. Remember what you used to do. Remember how you used to go to the uh, date night Tuesdays, movie Thursdays. Remember these things. They're not part of your life. Let's get them back in your life. Motivational interviewing. That's something to Google, motivational interviewing. I'll do a podcast on that. With regard to the recent CDC guidelines, 
um, vis-a-vis opioid dosage. Do you believe that there are patients who simply will never do well at these doses? Yes. Um, there are some people, and I'm telling you, you know, when you're in addiction and you do it for a while, you're going to tell, uh, you're going to be able to tell certain people that they just uh, they just do better. Um, and patients will tell you that I don't feel normal, and I never did feel normal until I took X. And it probably has something to do with the dopamine reward pathway and hedonic tone. Uh, that's beyond the scope of this talk. But that's a big yes. There are certain people that have been on these for so long. It's part of their psychological well-being, and that's our tough tackle. Um, yeah, and uh, some some folks have pain that, well, you know, take cancer pain. I mentioned cancer pain. Uh, there are other types of pain, um, central pain, uh, and other real resistant types of pain. They're going to need meds, and that's the documentation that you've got to learn and uh, measure functional indices, measure quality of life indices. Get that in the medical records. Is there ever a justifiable reason to maintain a patient at what most would consider very high doses of opioids? Yeah, I think I just had to answer that. Yeah, there are absolutely patients that need to be on high doses. And it's narcotic-resistant problems usually or else combination problems. But don't let folks use uh, opioids as a mu-opioid antidepressant. In other words, the... The drug is being used as an antidepressant, make a mood elevator more than an analgesic for proper usage. And so you're documenting in the medical record a legitimate medical need. That's what you've got to document. All right. I think that answered um, pretty much a lot of the question. Gary, I I could go into this another, gosh, Forty forty five minutes. American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians puts on an excellent um, course. Go to asipp.org on controlled substance management. As I speak now, we're three weeks away for another, from another one in uh, Chicago. And Sandy Silverman and I have been doing this for over a decade. It's a real good course with a certification, and I would recommend you look into that. Just that little extra bit of documentation that you went the extra mile because you do work in pain management is very important uh, for uh, accountability and for um, you know the whole credentialing process. It's a protective, um, you know, it's a protective uh, position to take in this ever-increasingly difficult uh, regulated world we live in. Thanks for the question. And, uh, folks, uh, paininformation.com, I'm getting to these questions, every one of them, and I've got, I could just get another one from Kate. We'll get to that, and Susan will get to yours, and I'll probably uh, do that later this week, and you know, I'll get caught up on a few more I've got. They're all really good questions. Plus, I've got some fantastic interviews I've got to get out. From one of the uh, fathers of uh, fentanyl, is very timely. I just read in, um, I think it was on Fox uh, today, that there's now a new resistant uh, form of uh, fentanyl that's come out. I'm sure it's synthetic, 
uh, alteration of the original molecule. But even like car fentanyl, uh, we read in the paper where a police officer was searching a car and a minuscule amount of car fentanyl was in there. I've talked about this. And it, it knocks them down. And it's really hard to reverse. So we'll get to that. And I appreciate you listening. Um, please uh, uh, rate me on uh, iTunes. That really helps, too. It helps me stay visible so people can find me. I'll never figure out their algorithm. I've, I've given up. But uh, I do know that uh, with people rating and actually uh, endorsing the show, it keeps me visible. So thanks again, and we'll see you soon.